Well, good morning. I'm glad to be here with you today as we continue our series. And really, today we're just taking a look at a pretty interesting book of the Bible. It's the book of Esther. Uh, the entire book, if you didn't get a chance to read it, I strongly encourage you to go back. It reads like a modern novel. The whole book is just one big story about a plot to kill all the Jewish people and how an ordinary woman put in an extraordinary position, stepped up, and did something very bold. But here's the thing about the book of Esther. It never mentions the name of God. And though he is the main character and the author is a master storyteller, like he leaves things very, very ambiguous. He doesn't answer a lot of questions that you wanna know the answer why to. It's very interesting. I'm, I'm serious, you should check it out because throughout the entire book, you're, you're wondering and you're pondering and he really makes you think through a lot of situations that may go on in your life. And, and although God is never mentioned, we clearly see throughout the entire book that he is the main character working in the midst of uncertainty. You see, the story reminds us and reminds me that even when God does seem distant, even when God seems unconcerned, even when he seems like he's absent from our life, maybe you felt like that, maybe you felt like God's not moving or God's not here. Even in the midst of all of those things, we see that God is still at work. So you have your Bible with you. Go ahead and open up to Esther chapter four. That's where we're eventually gonna land. But here's the setting. The story takes place after the Jewish people were allowed to go back and rebuild the temple under the king of Persia. What was his name? Right, Cyrus is when they were allowed to go back. Now, after Cyrus, there were some other kings, but this particular book takes under the reign of King Xerxes. And remember, the Jewish people were taken into captivity by Babylon. Then they were allowed to go home under the Persian Empire, rebuild their temple. We learned about that last week. So during that time, something else is going on. Something else is happening that will threaten all of their work in Jerusalem. And so here's the characters of the book. We have King Xerxes, which is the king of Persia. We have Queen Vashiti, his wife. We have Mordecai, who's Esther's cousin, who took her in as his own daughter after her parents passed away. We have Esther, who's a young lady who risked it all. And then we have Haman, who is the enemy who wants to destroy Israel. I'm just gonna take some time to overview the first couple of chapters. Again, if you haven't read it, I strongly encourage you to do so. It's about 10 chapters long, so we can't go through everything, but we'll go through some things. So chapter one starts off, it tells us that King exerts, I can say this until I stand up in front of you, okay? Like I destroy words, and I do it for you, by the way, so you feel more comfortable about reading your Bible, okay? So the king is rich and power, powerful. Persia's the most powerful army the world has ever seen up until this point, and the king decides to host a week-long banquet. Now, most likely, he's holding this banquet because he just strategized and had all of his military plans, because who is Persia in the middle of fighting right now? The Greeks. They lose, by the way. He doesn't know that yet. So that's what's going on. They're strategizing and they're doing all their military campaigns and it looks like he has everything figured out. So he holds a week long celebration where all the men are invited and they can drink, it tells us, as much as they want. And on the seventh day, he invites his queen. He says, come down here in your royal 
um, royal clothes and, and your crown and show yourself to all these men. Now, I think any woman that knows her husband and all of his military friends have been sitting around drinking for a week, the answer to that reply would be, no, I'm not going to this banquet. And she does. She says, no. Well, of course, this embarrasses the king. It was a public humiliation. More importantly to him, it's a public insubordination which makes him look bad in front of all of his military commanders, all of these noble people, like the queen's gonna refuse my request to come here? He says, we can't have this. And so they start to worry, what if, now this is when you know things are getting out of control. What if all the women start to disobey? We, we can't let, I mean, this is what happens. The queen says no. So if the queen can says no, that means all women of the land may stop listening to their husbands. Well, we can't have that. So he removes the queen, puts an edict out, which what we learned, they cannot be reversed. Once the king puts these commands out, they're called edicts. Once he does that, he can't even reverse them. It'll come into play later. But he puts out a command that's saying, all women must respect their husbands. In chapter two, we see that sort of, so the king is in war, they're strategizing, he now doesn't have a queen. So he's busy with all these military campaigns. So it takes him four years to search for another queen. Esther is taken among, which is, you know, Esther, the name of the book. Esther is taken among a bunch of other women, a lot of other women, and shown in front of the king to say, which do you want to be your queen? And wouldn't you know, it's a Cinderella story. Esther is picked, an orphan who's been raised by her cousin, picked as the most beautiful woman to become the king's bride. But Mordecai says, hey, you know, you've won, you, you, you beat everybody out. And this wasn't like an option. She wasn't seeking to be the queen. All the women had to come before him so he could pick. There, there's no option in this empire. And so Mordecai says, yeah, although you've been picked, do not let him know you're Jewish. You can't tell him that you're a Jew. And so she doesn't tell him. And evidently the king doesn't ask. However, one day Mordecai was hanging out at the king's gates. Now, evidently, Mordecai is some type of official. We don't really know. And the king's gates are where all the administration happens. One day, Mordecai is hanging out at the king's gates, and he hears a plot to overthrow the king, to kill the king. So Mordecai tells Esther. Esther tells the king, giving Mordecai credit. And so Mordecai stops a plot to kill the king, but he's never actually rewarded. He did a great thing, but it kind of slips the king's mind. It'll come into play later. So chapter one and two tells us about the Cinderella story. It tells us about how Mordecai and Esther are both loyal to the king and they've stopped this plot. And then we come into chapter three and we're introduced to the antagonist of the story. His name is Haman. He's elevated by the king. We don't know what he did, but evidently he's a close friend of the king. He's elevated among everybody else in the kingdom. And what you were had to do because of the king's position and what the king said about Haman is everybody had to honor him when he came by. So if Haman came by, you had to bow down to him. You're just paying him respect. You're not necessarily worshiping, but that's what the king commanded. However, Mordecai, when he saw Haman, he said, I'm not, I'm not bowing. All the people around Mordecai said, what are you doing? I mean, the king said you have to bow to this guy. I mean, this is the king's friend. Why aren't you doing this? He's like, I'm not doing it. And they kept bantering. He's like, I'm just not going to do this. And it tells us his response is, well, because I'm a Jew. Now we don't really know why. 
One people we think of Daniel, we're like, oh, they're acting like Daniel, not bowing down. That's probably not what's happening. What's probably happening is we're told that Haman is an Amalekite or an Agite. These are the same Jewish people. Now, if you go back, remember King Saul, the first king of Israel? Yeah, remember him? Remember King Saul fought this one king, the Amalekites, and it's this, when he beat all of these people, he really didn't destroy everything. God said to destroy everything. He didn't destroy everything. It's because of that act, he ended up being removed from being king. You remember that? Well, that's who it was if you don't remember. This is that same, this is a descendant from that group. We learned that Mordecai is a descendant from the tribe of Benjamin, which is Saul's group. So we have a racist thing going on is what this is. This is ethnicity. He's like, I'm not bound to that guy. I remember what they did a thousand years ago. Y'all ever had family feuds? That's what's going on here. He's like, I'm not bound to him. I know what they're, mm -mm. I mean, we beat them, but King Saul, Saul's from my lineage, no way. And Hammond, of course, is furious. He's outraged. Now talk about things getting out of control. Hammond says, you know what? I'm not only gonna kill Mordecai, which he probably could have got away with pretty easily. He says, I'm gonna wipe out all Jews. Think that's taking it too far? Says, you know, I'm not, that, that's why we think it's an ethnicity thing going on here. You know what? I'm gonna use this opportunity. I'm gonna wipe them all out. Because of what you did a thousand years ago, now's my chance. I'm taking the Jewish people out. So racial tension to say the least. And he basically rolls the dice to figure out what day he should annihilate all the Jews. It casts lots, rolls dice. And then magic numbers landed on about 11 months away. And so Haman goes to his king, his great friend, and says, hey, you got these people here. They're disobedient. They're different. They don't follow your laws. King, you know what? You should wipe them out. In fact, if you wipe them out, I'll give you a whole bunch of money. Now we're going, well, why would the king say yes to something like that? Remember, the king's in the middle of war. He's fighting the Greeks. He has so many things going on. The last thing in his mind is, do I need another group of people trying to fight me? Do I need to deal with another group of people? Right now, I don't have time for this. I'm busy, we're at war. This Alexander guy, he, didn't know, he wasn't the great yet, right? This Alexander guy has caused me all sorts of problems. So he's like, look, we got a Jewish shepherd. He said, wipe him out. So he signs an edict, which we know cannot be reversed, and go ahead, take him out. And Haman uses that lucky number that the dice rolled on and said, here's the day. So they send out an edict to all the land. On this day, we're gonna have a genocide. We're gonna wipe out all the Jews. And as crazy as that sounds, we know that genocides really do happen. We know from not too distant future that things like this are a reality of the world. As you can imagine, chapter four, when the Jews find out about this, they start mourning. They start wailing, they start crying. They can't believe, they start weeping and fasting and Mordecai expresses his, um, just kind of what's going on in his heart that is all his people are gonna be wiped out I imagine he felt really bad because it's what he did, you remember? Like he launched this thing by just not bowing down because of it. And so he dressed himself in rags and pushed ashes on his head, which shows mourning. When Esther found out that Mordecai was walking around town in rags and ashes, she sent him some clothes to his servants and said, hey, what are you doing? Put these clothes on. He refused the clothes. When she came back, she said, I sent a trusted servant. She says, go find out why he's mourning. Go find out what's going on. So Mordecai tells her trusted servant, hey, the king has put an edict out to kill all Jewish people. You know, Esther being the queen, she's kind of protected and shielded from all this. She lives in the palace. She has, I mean, she's just doing fine. 
In fact, he sends her a copy of the edict to read herself. And Mordecai said, listen, now's the time. Reveal yourself. Go in front of the king. Tell him who you are. Tell him to stop this genocide that's about to happen. So Esther 4.10 says, then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, that is a servant, all the king's officials and all the people of the royal providences know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. They be put to death unless the king extends his gold scepter to them and spares their life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go into the king. And so she says, look, Mordecai, I can't just go in before the king. His rule is, I mean, talk about protecting his time. If you come to me and I don't want to hear it, you're dead. That would stop you from complaining, wouldn't it? You'd be like, you know what? I'm not too sure this is important enough to take before the king. I give you the scepter. If I don't, you're dead. Don't waste my time is his message. And she says, look, we all know this law. We already know he doesn't play around with, you know, killing people and throwing kings, queens out. She says, in fact, it's been 30 days. Like, he's not worried about me. When Esther's words reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Of course, the famous lines in the book. He says, look, if you do nothing, you're gonna die. Remember, Esther, you're Jewish. You may have forgotten because you know, you've been up there for a while, but you're Jewish too. And he says, look, deliverance will come. Relief will come. God will save us. But in the meantime, you and I were going to die. And we think, well, why is Mordecai saying they're gonna be delivered? Because remember the covenant God made, they know that. They, God, know will not, will save them because of the covenant made with Abraham and how they've seen that progress. So he's saying, look, we know God's promises will come true. I mean, we may be killed in the mix, but God's gonna save, and who knows? How do you know that everything in your life has been pointing to this one defining moment? How do you know the whole reason that you're queen, the whole reason you've been picked, the whole reason that everything and all these events, how it's happened and transpired, how do you know this isn't the reason, Esther, that you're actually there? See, for such a time as this, and this will provoke all of us and must provoke all of us to always think and always wonder, for such a time as this, these defining moments, that how do we know and are we sure that we're not in a place and a time for a certain thing to step up and do something bold. Well, we're gonna have to make a choice. How do we know that God hasn't orchestrated or he probably has orchestrated for such a time as this? Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I, I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Now, while prayer isn't mentioned here, prayer is always accompanied by fasting. They go hand in hand. They don't have to say it. It's just what is done. She's calling the people, all of the Jewish people, to fast and pray, to seek God in a deep, meaningful way before she goes and faces the king. 
Basically, she says, I have a plan. I'm gonna be bold. But I'm gonna seek God just to make sure he's okay with this. Right? In case he wants to stop me, I'm good with that. But I'm gonna seek him during this. And here's the thing about this, which I found so fascinating, something that really spoke to me is, remember the Jewish people were already in mourning and crying? Mordecai was already mourning and, and worried and praying, which means that Esther is actually the answer to their prayer. Have you ever thought that you could be the answer to somebody's prayer? Have you ever thought by your boldness or that feeling and that wondering, I feel like I should do this, but I don't want to do it. It might embarrass me. Like, I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to stand up. I don't want to speak. I don't... Have you ever thought that you may be an answer to someone else's prayer? It's kind of thought-provoking, isn't it? Maybe that next time you get that nudge, that direction, that feeling, that maybe should I, could I, do I, maybe you realize for such a time as this that God has brought you there. So she decides she's willing to risk her position as queen. That's a lot to give up, isn't it? I mean, we don't like risking our jobs. We don't like risking the promotion. Talk about risking your position as queen. She has everything. She's willing to risk her life to be bold. But before she does that, she says, let's seek God. Before I do this, we need to make sure we're on the same page with him. And just to pause here, here are the things that really spoke to me during this story. I want to share them with you. And again, this story is so fascinating. Your Sunday school classes, I'm sure you're going to have different ways it spoke to you. Nothing I'm going to say is new. It's just a reminder for me and, and maybe for you. What really spoke to me is that before there was a problem, God already made provisions to save them. Before there was a problem, God already made provisions to save them. Before we're introduced to the wickedness of Haman, they make sure to let us know that God already had a plan. Although many of the Jews returned home to build Jerusalem, Mordecai and Esther didn't. Out of millions of women that could have been king, uh, queen, Esther was picked. In fact, Mordecai was there to just so happen hear this plot to kill the king. We see in the author's very intentional say this, yes, there's this plot, there's this thing that's gonna happen, but God was already working behind the scenes. He already knew before they knew. This problem wasn't a problem to him. He already had it under control. Which reminds me, sometimes we have to wait. Sometimes we have to act, but we must always trust. And it's a delicate balance. I'll be the first one to tell you, I don't get this right half the time. You see, think about the waiting. The Jewish people knew there was an order to wipe all of them out. And I am surprised we don't hear about militias forming, aren't you? If you know someone was gonna come and wipe out all your people when you start gathering together an army, like, oh yeah, we're not going outside. But we don't hear that. We hear them mourning and fasting and, and praying. But if they would have done that, if they would have looked like they were gonna rebel against the king, it would have gave the king all that he needed to stomp them out. If they would have acted like they were actually going to defy the Persian empire, he wouldn't have done what he ends up doing. So instead of just rushing to act, they wait, they pray. But then in other times we see, well, they had to, oh, excuse me, and while they're waiting, think about this. God's moving in the life of the king 
He creates an opportunity for him to actually honor Mordecai. He's moving in the life of Esther, prompting her to be bold. You see, waiting doesn't mean we're not doing anything. Waiting means we're allowing God to work so we can get on board with what he has going on. Waiting isn't passive. Waiting is saying, hey, I know God's doing stuff. I know God's orchestrating things. I don't want to overreact. I don't want to get ahead of him. Let me just see what he does. Charles Stanley says, waiting on God simply means that you continue in your present position until he gives you further instructions. So they were waiting. They were fasting, waiting for God to do something. But then I'm reminded about acting. I mean, Esther had to act. She was in a unique position to do something that nobody else could do. She was the queen after all. But we aren't told that she felt called. We aren't told that she, sees a, she saw a sign. All we're told is that she seized an opportunity that was presented to her. She was, had a unique opportunity. But while God was acting behind the scenes, she said, let's wait and pray. Let's make sure, let's give him time. Let's not overreact. Let's make sure this is what he wants us to do. How many of us act before we wait? Yeah, some of us are really good at acting. Some of us are really good at waiting. I'm really good at acting. Let's get it done and get it done now. Sometimes we gotta pause, we gotta wait and let God do what he's going to do. You see, she wasn't trying to force him. She was trying to get on board with what he had planned. Imagine if each and every one of us embraced that God has placed us in a unique time, in a unique place, in a unique job, with a unique family for something he wants us to accomplish. What if we embraced every opportunity? In fact, what if we prayed and waited daily? What if we anticipated we were gonna act? What if we anxiously waited every day to act, to seize an opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ every single day? What if we lived a life knowing that God was gonna use us every day for something, for his glory and for his benefit? What if we realized that job that we absolutely hate was to be the light in a dark spot? What if we realize that that family that we've been placed in and we've begged God and asked God, why is this my reality? Like, I didn't choose this, you did this. What if we realize that he's gonna use us and he has used us and is using us for unique opportunity for him? So however we go, sometimes we wait, sometimes we act, but no matter what, we have to trust his plans. The story reminds us that although it may not feel like it, God was orchestrating everything behind the scenes, that he had it all under control. And while you and I try to make sense of our lives, our calling, our direction, and we're struggling down here, God's like, look, I, I got it. Just continue on until that opportunity presents itself. Just keep going until you'll know when. Just keep going and you'll know when. I'm asking you to step up. Trusting is hard. Waiting is hard. Some of us acting is hard. That's where Isaiah 55, eight just comes into play and you already know this verse. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declared the Lord. And this is a hard balance, isn't it? When do I wait? When do I act? I know I gotta trust, but how does it all work? I'll be the first to tell you, I mess it up all the time. I'm reminded of when we hired actual Scott Johnson to be our praise and worship leader. 
When I first came, actually the day, the weekend I came in view of a call for the church, I met with the staff and the first thing Tommy said to me, he says, I'm leaving. I was like, okay. He's like, I'm just letting you know, I'm leaving at the end of the year. I told the church a year ago and now this, he said, I'm just letting you know, I'm leaving. I was like, well, nice to meet you too. I appreciate that. So as soon as I get here, I move in. I know, okay, our worship leader's leaving. And then we have this hurricane and then this flood thing happened like right when I started. And so we just got this whole thing going on. Next thing you know, Tommy's like, hey, just let you know, I'm still leaving. I'm like, Tommy, like, can we work something out? And so we talked and we worked through it, but we finally put the search team together and and we started looking at candidates and we found a couple that we liked and we started working through the process interviewing. We found this one guy that, that we liked, but there was a concern. We said, well, we like him, but we don't know if he'd be really a good fit for the church. You know, he only comes from extreme contemporary circumstances. But I met with him, the team liked him. My wife and I even interviewed with him one evening. We talked about eight o'clock at night after we put the kids down. We talked with him and his wife, just talking through the church. And so we talked to the team, we talked with him. We said, hey, why don't we bring him in for an interview? So we let him know, we said, hey, we wanna bring you in for an interview. And he says, you know what, I wanna back out. So, no, I mean, no, like you can't do that, right? That's what I'm thinking, I'm going, hold on. I called him up, I was like, why are you backing out for the interview? Like, I mean, we've already eliminated the other candidates. We don't have anybody else. So we're like, no, that's, God's not telling you that. That's like not what he's saying you're just scared, I already know. Okay, I've, I've, I'm, I'm speaking for you, you're just scared. Let's talk this through. So I talked to him, he says, well, let, let me have some more time. I said, take some more time, and him and his wife took some more time. Called him back and I laid it on thick. Like, man, our church is amazing. There's 10,000 people here every Sunday, you're gonna be famous. <laughs> like, I lied, I didn't really lie, okay? But I was like, look, look. And then, Call back again, he says, well, we need more time to pray. We don't think it's the right thing. Actually, there was some time in there we couldn't find anybody. I was like, man, none of these people are gonna work. So I'm getting nervous. Tommy's like, hey, Brian, just letting you know, I'm leaving soon, just reminding you again. I'm like, thanks, thanks, Tommy. So we're trying to fight the tension. I mean, Tommy ended up graciously saying, I'll stay. He's, he ended up coming to me saying, Brian, I'm not gonna leave you hanging. I'll stay as long as you need, but I know that Tommy is ready. So we're trying to figure all of this out with everything else that's going on. And so I called him back. I said, look, you need to reconsider this. He took another week and he said, this, this isn't it. I said, okay. Talk with the team. I said, look, we gotta start over. And there was no applicants. We couldn't find anybody. Then all of a sudden, we get this email in. His name's Scott. No other applicants, not even close. We like nobody else. And all of a sudden, we get this email from this guy, Scott, just a couple hours away saying, hey, I'm interested in the position. So I look at his stuff and I see his video and he's singing with a bunch of other people and I'm like, oh, that's smart. If I was a terrible singer, I would let other people sing with me. <laughs> like, like, I see what he's doing here, right? And so I sent back to him, I said, hey, when you have a chance, I said, can you just send us some stuff? Doesn't have to be big. Just you playing the guitar, singing some songs. You know, two songs I told him, come to the altar and good, good father. I like him. About two and a half hours later, I get an email, here are the songs. He's like, I, I didn't have a guitar at the house because I haven't played it for a while. I used the piano, so I had to go to church and I went to church and I recorded and played. I'm going, oops, I didn't mean for him to do all that. I just wanted him to simply play a song. It could have took them five minutes and spent a whole lot of time. And I said, well, there's something going on here. That, that, that impressed me pretty good. 
And you so during this time, the search team had to wait because God was moving in Scott's life. He was moving in Bren's life. He was moving in their calling. He was moving on Tommy, telling Tommy, hey, give some grace here. And Tommy, again, that's what he said. He said, Brian, we're not gonna leave you hanging. I'll be here. But with all these things going on, I felt pressure. The team felt pressure. What are we gonna do? But God said, I, I got this. Just wait. So then God brought us somebody who was such a great fit who plays the piano, who reads music, who loves choir and has youth experience. He brought us somebody we needed at that opportune time, exactly what we needed here at the church. And while I am bragging on him a bit, what I'm trying to tell you is I tried to ruin all of it because I was acting. I felt pressured. And maybe like you, maybe you forget. Maybe you forget that before there's a problem, God already knew. Before something's going on, he's already orchestrating events to take care of it. Sometimes we have to wait. Sometimes we have to act, but it has to be this delicate balance with prayer and trust. Because at the end of the day, I wasn't trusting. That's hard to admit, but it wasn't. I, I gotta act. God's like, hard, already got figured out. Like, go ahead. Waste all that time, but I already got it figured out. So be reminded today, Whatever problems you're facing, whatever problems you're going to face, God already knows. He's already made provisions to deal with it before you even knew there was a problem. Sometimes all you have to do is take a deep breath and wait. You see, because God's plans can't be thwarted, which means they can't be outdone. No one can overtake him. And that's what goes back to the story of Esther. You see, God made the covenant with them that they would not be wiped out. God made a covenant that he would protect them. You see, Mordecai ended up being honored like he originally should have been. Esther did step up and carefully orchestrated the events to where Haman was plotted to try to kill her and all the Jewish people, all her descendants, which the kings, once he found out she was Jewish, acted and took care of that. He ended up writing an edict saying, hey, I can't overturn the other one, but Jews, you're allowed to start an army, you're allowed to overtake, discouraging everybody else, allowing the Jews to take up arms And as you can imagine, the Jews overcame and won those who were trying to take them out. So in the entire book, while there may not seem like there's any miracles, God's name may be not mentioned, the entire book speaks to the miraculous works of God, orchestrating events, times, people, and places. And it should remind you and it should remind me that God is still working. God has a purpose and a plan for each and every one of us. Even when he seems distant, even when he seems unconcerned or absent, he's still at work doing far more than we'll ever know. And you see, the story reminds us that before we've done anything, God has already saved us. See, that's what communion's about, is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before you were born, he already set a plan in motion to save you. Just like we see in the book of Esther, before anything went wrong, he already had it covered. Before you've ever done anything, he's already had it covered, but this time by his blood, by the death of Jesus Christ for each and every one of us for our sins. So we're gonna come to the table today, and what this is, is if you're a Christian, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we ask you come and, and take communion with us. If you're not a Christian, we just ask you to refrain from it. It's, it's okay, we're used to it if you just sit back and just watch it. But before we take, Paul tells us to get our hearts right. 
And so maybe you got something going on in your life that's kind of breaking your fellowship with the Lord. Maybe you're engulfed in a sin. Maybe you got something against somebody. We just wanna give you time to think through that. To remember the saving grace of Jesus Christ that all of our sins can be forgiven because of his death and resurrection. And so when we come before the table, I'm just gonna pause. We're gonna have a moment of silence. We're gonna let you do business with the Lord. And then I'll close us in prayer. So will you pray?